Hello, pod people. My name is Frank Key, and this is a special podcast edition of Hooting Yard on the Air. I'm going to talk to you today about pod people. There was a time, of course, when pod people weren't people who went round with iPods in their ears, but pod people were people from the invasion of the body snatchers. And of course there's all sorts of other pods. Pea pods, vanilla pods. Anyway, whatever kind of pods we're talking about, I'm going to read you some potted biographies of pod people. She had a zest for crumpled things and for things bent or stricken or shriveled. She surrounded herself with the wizened and the drooling. She herself was never known to emit the merest gobbit or dribble. Who can guess at her motives, her desires? Who can say when first she careered over the fields at the wheel of a red tractor belching poisonous gas, her brains laid waste by tar and calcium? Brontosauruses crowded her dreams, the tumbril her nightmares. Her menagerie of crumpled oafs fell away from her, bit by bit, until she was left dismal and abandoned, a crocus clutched in her gnarled fist. After a struggle with fate, with her hair and with the wire pullers, she had to give in. There were many cupboards, and in one of them he was astonished to discover a bag of porridge. It was the beginning of a trail that would lead him to share a carpentry business with a future pope. To swig rum from a crusted flask. To know fear and trembling in the wastes of Antarctica. And to be smeared with ochre resin by mauve-clad bat people but he could not have foreseen such a tremendous brouhaha standing there in the house of Terps, staring into one of the hundred thousand cupboards, their contents a vast and unintelligible agglomeration, the key, no doubt, to some dreadful plot hatched by nameless fiends in century long ago. No, at the moment of discovery, confronted by the bag of porridge, he was not yet a... Nur in the sh of Baron Gregor. At breakfast, she asked questions about a dead hummingbird, or rather about the scrap of paper wrapped around its leg. Her insistent fishing for information was met by a silence the like of which Ebbing Hall had not known for decades not since Father Tweakling had hurled himself from the parapet gurgling, smudged, broken, ah, broken. No sooner were the breakfast pots and pans clustered safely back in the Generalissimo's pantry, but shots rang out in the copse. Hurtling to the scene with her toast yet undigested, she was stricken with queasiness. The hall itself seemed to be all a-crumbling, the ground beneath her shaking. Oh, the ravished brick! Oh, the violated gutter! Oh, the crushed building!
The consecration of the holy oils, vase, oil sticks and chrism made him sick to his stomach. Leaving the palace by a side door of rotting wood, he strode through the grounds, tearing up tulips, pinks and whites, chrysanthemums, dogs, earwigs, little children's carts and massive inelegant horses. The palace guards waited for him at the gate, trembling with the ferocity of vengeance. At last he came into view, skipping along without a care, a golden shield in one hand and an anvil in the other. His countenance was dreadful, and the guards fell about in horrifying fits, ending with a tremendous death-rattle. He left by the main gate, a past master of horticulture, forestry, landscape gardening and mayhem. Yonder are three half-domesticated hill goats whose greyish undergrowth of mohair is woven undyed for underclothing in upper Styrian villages, he exclaimed, gesticulating behind him with a long-pointed stick. The jaws of his audience dropped as one, allowing him a view of fourteen startled gobs. I shall now proceed to Lasso Hill Goat A, Harry and Hector Hill Goat B, and pointedly ignore Hill Goat C. Are ye for me or agin me? This last in a most blood-curdling yell, which forced all fourteen jaws to clap back up and hair to stand on end. For his metal was rare and untoward, to say the least. Shivering in the icy gloom, the audience stepped after him as he wheeled himself up the hillside, garishly rouged and dizened with trumperies. He came from Batavia merely to eat my toast. Lurching through the door, dazzling me with half-remembered conjuring tricks and all the wit and repartee of a stone, he bade himself take position by the umbrella stand and bust up Ormolu vase, there to fend off unwelcome hawkers by the lavishness of his ruination. In the kitchen, I busied myself with the toast, surrendering to his demands. In eight years, I witnessed him eat nothing else, nor detected any pilfering from my goodly larder. We spoke together twice a week, and I gave him his own key to the bathhouse. Friends and neighbours learned to enjoy his presence, to their surprise, for he was by no means pretty, and his boots creaked whenever he abandoned his post. The nerves of her face screwed up into a little energy of shrewdness. The attic was cluttered with old geographical magazines, pennants, dyes, twine, forks, bags of cement, fulcra, branding irons and similar impenetrabilia. Could she but cart away the whole lot now in her sack, she would doubtless dismay the gathered pedants in the room below. But her sack could carry only a fraction of this jumble heap, and she was at a loss as to what to take and what to leave behind. She knew that her accomplice, lurking in the spinney, could offer little help, given the bandages, the starch, the dents. A toad leapt from a bucket to her right, and she had to stifle a shriek of surprise. 
but the jolt did her good. She could not afford to waste time. Where, where in this clutter was the annotated list of Styrian barons? She was lank and deplorably emaciated, ghost more than woman. Rusted rosary beads trailed from her hands as she trudged up and down the towpath of the stinking canal. Altered beyond recognition by the passage of time and by the aftermath of a most peculiar accident involving a small whisk and Drambui the Wonder Horse, she remained strangely anonymous to the bilious ever-complaining villagers who wore ill-fitting boots and lumbered around the jetty, exhaling the croaking breath of deep despair. She mucked about with them, often joining them in games of lantern jaw and spite, or helping them forage for ragwort in the big gardens of the abandoned manor. But though she asked for the sun, they gave her iris and the Gotterdammerung. She was as one who doggedly ruminates bitterish herbage. Not for her a travelling bag and a nodding acquaintance with the stationmaster. No, she remained as if anchored to her patch, the house, the garden, the pavilion, the hut, the crumbling wall. Botany had brought her to her knees. How well she knew that her massive and intricate cross-sectional diagrams of pods and stamens were utterly, utterly without the merest whiff of merit. Had she the gumption, she would have plunged into the bottomless pit at the end of her terrace long ago. After all, it was no longer fenced off, and it would be a matter of seconds to walk to the edge and throw herself in. Pah! She returned to the winter house, pen and protractor in hand, her frock brabbling at every stalk of the breeze. It's an old serum liturgical book in pigskin, said the cloth-eared detective, poking about with a forensic fork in the interior of the charred crate. He tapped his lip thoughtfully. Had it come to this? He lay flat on his back on the floor, divesting his mind entirely of all he thought, knew, felt, believed. His cloth-eared assistant tiptoed away, sensing that Sedge was once again about to startle the world with his genius. Of a sudden, a fragment of masonry, unaccountably dislodged from the roof, plummeted through the rafters and landed fair and square on Sedge's skull, bashing it to smithereens. A museum now houses the fragments of the great man's brain, and his mind now lurks in a spectacular stronghold, of which his teeth form the ramparts. She held a scrap of paper scorched at one end, and smeared with soap and atoms of hair. She carried it into the control room, frantic with glee. Wiping the smears with a foul old cloth, she smoothed the paper out, weighing down the corners with blocks of zinc and cadmium. It would take years to decipher, but she knew now that she could not be stopped. Then she made haste to take up her position on the podium. The empty chairs filled with tiresome drones, each carrying some trinket or gewgaw of little significance. 
she chuckled to herself, and then, clearing her throat, began. Far be it from me to pour ridicule upon your crumpled frames, but I must make clear. I take this oil engine, dynamo, electric stove, else I should catch my death in this wet cloud before, before being frozen to a bone in the zero of cold. That white vetch which shimmers so bridally in all shades of twilight was to him the most precious thing on earth and he took pains to, pr to protect it from vandals and gits wherever he found it sprouting up in the sod. That white vetch seemed to him to speak of the highest and the best, a spiritual mountain peak to which all life could aspire. Yet wherever he strayed, weighed down by protective vetch nets, mustard gas and cattle prods, he found gangs of vile brigands only too ready to stamp their heavy-booted feet upon this impeccable foliage, or indeed to tear it untimely from the ground and fling it in his face. And so, as he bestrode the land to cosset and rescue more vetch, he little knew that there awaited him in Bodger's Spinney a psychotic ne'er-do-well with a blowtorch and a sharpened adze. After the dumb centuries, a flag from God. She was in her mufti, gently persuading Dan to go fully haywire, when a brilliant incandescence bleached the sky. Flocks of previously unknown domestic animals cantered towards her, making disgusting noises which yet sounded like music to her ears. The odour of vinegar and glory wafted in the air. She felt herself floating above the ground, Dan below her looking up in his usual drooling, gormless fashion. Her hair became as buckets, her teeth as dawlish, her insides as pelmet. God spoke to her then in a boom, boom, boom of a voice, so abominably loud that she did not understand a word and would only later be able to recall the terrifying import of what he said. For after that day she was never far from the very saffron of death and patrescence imminent. She bought an urn to blub in. Fanning her kin across the entire continent, she sent each one on a journey carrying a parcel of some weird inchoate goo. This, she insisted, would be the food of the future. It was only necessary to convince crowned heads, tyrants, autocrats, if possible the most viciously powerful of them. One by one, her family set sail from the docks, parcels clutched to their bosoms, and she made a pretense at sobbing into the urn, the better to speed them on their way. Returning to the shabby donjon she called home, she composed thousands of letters, outlining the ludicrous ritualistic behaviour required of those preparing to eat her vile goo. These letters have since been made public and nauseated us all, but the sub-singular, though mawkish, is pleasing to some. He sat on a cube of marble, bestowing his teeth upon the scene. 
The prow of a pirate ship was fast approaching him from behind, but he paid it no mind. Gulls screeched, fish leapt out of the water, men with tongs hopped about on rafts under the jetty. He sat still, beaming radiantly, exhibiting his teeth a little more. The pirate ship ran aground on the rocks. Many perished, but some swam to safety. Night fell. The inns and taverns opened their doors, dispensing free grog to the pirates, who repaid this hospitality by shelling peas, building a veranda, and arching their backs in a most amusing manner. And still this man sat on his marble cube as if he were a statue or even a figment. In the dead of night, he burst with a tremendous explosion, unleashing a mad troop of demons into the town as the moon ranged away through mist and vapours. He concocted pastorals in his closet, though few would be privy to their contents. Gasping for breath, inhaling deeply the smoke from a just-extinguished candle, he scribbled tripe about bumptious, ruddy shepherds, hardly able to see the marks he made on the planks of hard mahogany he used instead of paper. The closet stank of stolen paint, of nerve gas and moist earth. Its architecture was abhorrent, alive with deranged angles and jagged cornices formed from impacted vegetable matter and grime. That he lived in this nightmare was a feather in his cap, as far as Mr Rodriguez was concerned. He spurned food and drank little except dismal beverages brought to him by wastrels and urchins. So, eaten away by loathing and hopscotch, he leaned over the fire in a silence of wormwood. Ever and anon he pipped aside from his lips a dry pinpoint of nothing. At the wheel of the sarcophagus truck, he hummed tuneless cod hymns, bewailing birth and death, dust and ashes, and the rattling of holy sabres in their scabbards. The road ahead was subterranean, an endless tunnel leading only he knew where. With his cargo of turnips and beetroots, he drove like the clappers, ignorant of all else on the road. But then there was nothing else on the road, for this was his personal route, built only for him, and soon to end at a big iron fence with his name etched hurriedly on a signpost. Breaking, he staggered from his truck and went up to the sign to peer at it, scratching at flakes of dry skin in his hair. Before night, he was stricken by dyspnoia and laryngeal stridor miles below the surface, and quite helpless. They had been singeing his insides with chromic acid and the cautery, and at last he was ready for the tharbin. Quickly adjusting the bolts in his vest of turmoil, he crashed through the multi-spindled gateway, unleashing a stream of gaseous sprays from his cleverly camouflaged rucksack device. The hooded figures scurried to get out of his way as, with a tremendous leap, he found himself in a chamber packed chocker with lurid, sneering matelots. 
Taking a cutlass from his pudding bag, he whirled about as if demented, slicing at the air. In the distance, he could see the frayed oxygen tent and blurred within it the Tharbin. Ferocious dogs gnashed at his heels. Hurling the Bunsen burners through the portal, he came face to face with the guns and din of Armageddon and the arbitrament of the doom of being. The conveyance of the wafer to an altar of repose was ever a thrilling sight. For him it held an allure both despicable and remote from the ken of ordinary common or garden folk. He fell off a rickety pier as an eleven-year-old, and his experience in the brackish, muddy depths marked him for life. Rescued by a jolly Jack Tar retailing enticing nautical yarns, he was transported to a rest home for the besmirched thousands of miles away. He was kept awake at night by the baying of huskies and the howling of wolves. His days were measured by the even tread of a monocled hog-baiter traipsing the corridors in futility and anguish. So he hid behind an ottoman, fixed into a nook under a Christ in honestone, covered with embroideries from far Armenia. An attempt had been made to wrench out a nerve on his left side by way of the external scission. He had resisted as best he knew how from his long experience of tending to derailment victims. But his captors were made of sterner stuff. Cooped up here in the plush of the iron genuflection, he had no option but to allow his nerve to be wrenched out of him by these barbarous wretches. On Thursday they made yet another attempt, their mouths brimming with a glaucous fluid which appeared to aid them in the push and shove of the operation. Despite the irritation, he knew he could not give in without a fight, and shouted splendidly until they cracked him one with a hammer. The descent into unconsciousness was quick. No longer did his brogue swell, nor did he wax wroth. Matches and arc lights were beyond the imagining of the evangelists. Yet he stands in a blaze of light, the foe of the farmyard, reeking of ale. No goose can last a minute in his company without falling to bits. No cow, nor hen, nor goat, none of these is without his purview as he embroiders the earth with his darning needle of death. Driven only by ale and dementia, he suffers boils, buboes, plagues, yet he does not and shall not desist in his mission, the exact purpose of which remains unbeknown to the wider world upon which he delivers his terrible harangues. It has been said of him that he divides the world into church and sheep, but precisely how this relates to his project is beyond the ken of the present author. He sat on a couch made out of four bags of brains. He stood on top of a mountain made entirely of cork. He knelt under a monstrous satchel suspended by ropes from a hardboard trellis. Sightless, encased in cloth spun from the fleeces of thwarted basilisks, he dabbed at his throbbing brow with myrrh, gin and extract of liverwort. This man... 
this enormity, spoke of rare and troubling deeds, deeds he gave as history, but were merely the wisps of his own days. Montgolfier, resplendent in blue and gold, armed to the teeth, hurling steeplejacks, chefs and windbags from the basket of his balloon, a tale told endlessly, always with new and unexpected details, the firing imagining of this Hobart man, a union of Thomas a Beckett and Savonarola. I saw Hortense pelting up the boards embedded in soil which served as steps from the bridge to the warehouse. She dashed past me without a word, save to plant a maroon flag in my path, as it were a love token, perhaps, or some fey signal of splendid moment. Then she was gone, into the belly of the warehouse, only the rank stench of her homemade perfume loitering in the air about me. So vile was this parody of odoriferousness that I bent double and vomited, long and hard, emptying my insides of a sterling lunch. Luckily I missed the flag, that done, I followed her inside, Alice to her Welsh rarebit, and found her curled up on a pallet in the darkling gloom, a breathing tube in her trachea, and eternity under her pillow. I shall never forget her. As a child, deranged Mahouts attached a pair of antlers to his cranium. As the years passed, forks and branches sprouted with increasing rapidity, their momentum such that by his thirtieth birthday he was effectively barred from entering his own house. A vivid circus tent was found for him, and he spent much of his adulthood patching up holes pierced in its fabric by the restless, implacable antlers atop his skull. Eventually, the tent itself was too small, and he fell to wandering dejectedly in the vast purple hills of Hoon. He was last seen seated in the gloaming on the roots of an infamous yew on the road between Hoon and Minns. The antlers mysteriously vanished, as if they had never existed at all. Out broke remotely the country brogue of the bell's tongues clapping. Clang, clang, clang. As ever, morning at the Watercress Farm was hideous, her foliage spindly and vicious, acid rainfall numbing what was left of her pitiful brain. She bounded around the outskirts of the farm, peering into ramshackle sheds, puffing at cheroots with all her might. Transported by the hand of God to an even fouler ordinance, she buttoned up her coat and spat, and spat, each clang of the bells accompanied by the hiss of her spitting onto live coals. But by now the day was done, its repulsive music frozen in her ears, and by turns she found herself fingering the dross of a yet grosser world. I have a memory of a man, a masked man, a lanky man with a stoop, so strong, so rude, dark as death, cruel as the grave. Even his ears had a pattern of foulness, a stench of sin. 
Crabbed and forlorn, he spewed a torrent of impious verbiage, larding his words with spurious misquotations from the Latin poets, deliberately mispronouncing all verbs beginning with B. He held sway atop a mountain of his own imagining, resplendent in a hat made of blood oranges and a cape of most unearthly sheen. His maps were muddy and rank. I heard it said that his skills as a cartographer abandoned him in Hyderabad. Picture him then, leaning against a piece of fractured masonry, panoplied in crassness. (laughs) 